Hello fellow saints and welcome back to Come Follow Me with Brother T. We are covering Mosiah chapters 25 through 28. And this is talking mostly about Alma the older and then Alma the younger in his repentance process. And the major theme of these chapters in through here is repentance or change and also discipline. And we'll go over a lot more about what discipline means in just a minute here. But let's start in chapter 25. We have the people of Zarahemla welcome Alma and his people. If you remember from last episode, Alma and his people escaped uh, from the Lamanites and also from Amulon who was oppressing them. And they joined up with, with King Limhi and King Mosiah in the land of Zarahemla. And so there's great rejoicing. And actually, Mosiah has the history of, of all of these people, of Limhi, of Zenith, who's Limhi's grandfather, and of Alma and his people read to all the people. There's much rejoicing over the good and the bad things that happen uh, throughout all of this. In fact, in verse 7, it talks about how there's wonder and amazement. And then in verse 8, it talks about the joy. And then 9, it's a sorrow because of the wickedness of King Noah and all the people who were lost under Limhi who kept going out to battle. And then in 10, they recognize God's hand in, in their preservation and their salvation and they give thanks to him and then in 11 they talk again about uh, pain and anguish because of the iniquities of the Lamanites who are also their brethren in verse 18 it talks about how King Limhi remember he asked Ammon who had come to rescue them if he would baptize them and Ammon refused saying he wasn't worthy or something to that notion and here Limhi gets the chance to be baptized and he gets baptized by Alma in verse 18 it says Therefore Alma did go forth into the water and did baptize them. Yea, he did baptize them after the manner he did his brethren in the waters of Mormon. Yea, and as many as he did baptize did belong to the church of God, and this because of their belief on the words of Alma. So, of course, Limhi is now baptized. His people are now baptized. You've got this major church organization going on. So Alma, who is delegated the authority to organize these all these different congregations by Mosiah, begins now to set aside priests and, and make different congregations that can meet and serve each other. It says in verse 19, And it came to pass that King Mosiah granted unto Alma that he might establish churches throughout all the land of Zarahemla, and gave him power to ordain priests and teachers over every church. And this was done in verse 20. Now this was done because there were so many people that they could not all be governed by one teacher. Neither could they all hear the word of God in one assembly. Therefore, they did assemble themselves together in different bodies, being called churches. Every church having their priests and their teachers and every priest preaching the word according as it was delivered to him by the mouth of Alma. Remember, you've got three groups of people coming together. The church has seen a major resurgence and is doing very well and they're prosperous. The only problem that we come to is in chapter 26, and we learn that the rising generation is turning away from the church. It's a very interesting conundrum here because you have these people who were converted by King Benjamin, the people of Zarahemla, and by his amazing words. Then you have the people of King Limhi, who are recent converts, who their parents before them had been active under King Zenith. And then you also have Alma and his people who are also fairly recent converts, just like Limhi, a little bit before that, uh, who are very stalwart and active. But then the rising generation is falling away. 
And it says in, in chapter 26, verse 1, Now it came to pass there were many of the rising generation that could not understand the words of King Benjamin, being little children at the time he spake unto his people, and they did not believe the tradition of their fathers. It goes on down further in verse 3. It says, And now because of their unbelief, they could not understand the word of God, and their hearts were hardened. So they, they didn't want to believe. They didn't want to have faith. And because of their lack of faith, they didn't understand the scriptures or they didn't understand the writings of the prophets. And therefore, they began to fall away from the church. And they, it says in verse 4 that they didn't get baptized and that they were giving into the carnal and sinful state. And they began to use flattering words, it says in verse 6, to deceive those who were in the church, which means that not only did they not believe the teachings of the church, but they had also become apostate to the church. And I want to read this quote from Elder Eyring and then follow it up with a quote by Elder Holland about the rising generation. It says, No charge in the kingdom is more important than to build faith in youth. Each child in each generation chooses faith or disbelief. Faith is not an inheritance. It is a choice. Those who believed King Benjamin learned that. Many of their children chose later not to believe. The scriptures give as a reason for they would not call upon the Lord their God. So it's interesting and one of the things that we can do to help safeguard our children is to teach them how to pray, teach them how to understand the scriptures. But ultimately, it is their choice as to whether or not they're going to believe and whether or not they're going to do those things to build the foundation, to establish roots, and to grow their testimony and conversion. Elder Holland says, So much that we do in this church is directed toward you, those whom the Book of Mormon calls the rising generation. We, who have already walked that portion of life's path that you are now on, try to call back to you something of what we have learned. We shout encouragement. We try to warn of pitfalls or perils along the way. Where possible, we try to walk with you and keep you close to our side. I think that's very true that in the church we do a lot to try and help the rising generation develop those things that they need to grow their testimony and be converted. But agency is still the most important thing. And youth and all of us have to decide to have faith and to build that conversion process. Well, Alma is distraught by so many of these people who are committing sins. And the members of the church who are committing sins and are being deceived are brought before him to be judged. And he takes them to King Mosiah. And King Mosiah, and you, we discover this in, in chapter 26, verses 8 through 12, tells Alma that he basically has given them, he's given him the charge of the church, and so it's his job to judge them. And Alma doesn't quite know what to do. In fact, in verse 13 it says, And now the spirit of Alma was again troubled, and he went and inquired of the Lord what he should do concerning this matter, for he feared that he should do wrong in the sight of God. And isn't this the great example of a leader, someone who is a judge in Israel, has been given this commandment, who knows that it's a humbling experience. And what does he do? He doesn't want to do that which is wrong in the sight of the Lord. So first and foremost, he wants to do the will of the Lord. And he's troubled about it. So what does he do? He inquires of the Lord what the Lord would have him do. And the response from the Lord is, is absolutely beautiful. He says, Blessed art thou, this is verse 15, Alma, and blessed are they who were baptized in the waters of Mormon. Thou art blessed because of thy exceeding faith in the words alone of my servant Abinadi. And blessed are they because of their exceeding faith in the words alone which thou hast spoken unto them. 
And blessed art thou because thou hast established a church among this people, and they shall be established, and they shall be my people. And then in verse 20 he says, Thou art my servant, and I covenant with thee that thou shalt have eternal life, and thou shalt serve me and go forth in my name, and shalt gather together my sheep. What's happening here is that Alma is getting his calling and election made sure. He's being promised eternal life because the Lord knows that he's not going to choose anything contrary to the commandments of God. He's going to do what the Lord wants. And then we have this great little set of scriptures that talk about eternal life and who qualifies themselves for eternal life. In verse 24 it says, For behold, in my name are they called. And if they know me, they shall come forth and shall have a place eternally at my right hand. On the other side, those who do not have a place in eternal life, it says in verses 25 through 28, And it shall come to pass that when the second trump shall sound, then shall they that never knew me come forth and shall stand before me. And then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, that I am their Redeemer, but they would not be redeemed. And then I will confess unto them that I never knew them, and they shall depart into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Therefore I say unto you, that he that will not hear my voice, the same shall ye not receive into my church, for him I will not receive at the last day. However, and this is really important, and this is what's going to set up the next several chapters here about forgiveness and repentance. He says in verse 29, Therefore I say unto you, Go, and whosoever transgresseth against me, him shall ye judge according to the sins which he has committed. And if he confess his sins before thee and me, and repenteth in sincerity of his heart, him shall ye forgive, and I will forgive him also. Yea, and as often as my people repent, will I forgive them their trespasses against me. And it talks about how we as people should forgive one another their trespasses no matter what, no matter how many times. But I want to emphasize verse 30. As often as my people repent, will I forgive them their trespasses against me. So often in the church, and I think good members of the church feel this sometimes, that they have one or two sins that are just the bane of their existence, that really bring them down, that are really hard for them. They keep doing them over and over, and it might take a lifetime to overcome them. And it gets to a point where they might even think, I can never overcome this in the Lord. How can the Lord keep forgiving me from this? They almost talk themselves, or they do talk themselves, into thinking that they are unsavable because of this sin that they just can't seem to overcome consistently. But the Lord makes it very clear in verse 30 that if we confess that sin and keep trying, we will always be forgiven. It's as simple as that. The Lord wants to forgive us, but we have to do what he asks. We have to confess our sins and we have to keep trying and working towards repentance. The key in there is to confess. In Doctrine and Covenants section 58 verse 43, it says, By this ye may know, if a man repenteth of his sins, behold, he will confess them and forsake them. And Proverbs 28.13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Now we know that not all sins need to be confessed to a bishop or higher authority, but the more serious sins do. Bishops and stake presidents and branch presidents and mission presidents to whom people confess are there to help in the process. And I want to read this quote because I think it's very relevant here 
about church discipline. And this is from Elder Theodore M. Burton, who was in the Quorum of the Seventy back in the early 1900s. He says, It saddens me when I hear how some of our members, and even sometimes our local leaders, treat people who have been disciplined for transgression. I realize there is a tendency to equate the word discipline with the word punish, but there is a difference between these words. In English, the word discipline has the same root as the word disciple. A disciple is a student to be taught. In dealing with transgressors, we must remember that they desperately need to be taught. And I love that that word play in there. Of course, I, I really like words. I like to study etymology. And when you think about discipline and disciple, it's about teaching. It has nothing to do with punishment here. In fact, if someone confesses their sins and they want to repent, it's about helping them and teaching them the path to repentance. And it is not about making sure that they are punished for whatever it is that they did. However, there are times when it's not just discipline, but it actually is to some degree a punishment. And it says here in verse 36, And those that would not confess their sins and repent of their iniquity, the same were not numbered among the people of the church, and their names were blotted out. So there is an occasion where we excommunication is a punishment. It's not part of the discipline process, but it is a punishment. And Elder Oaks says, Church discipline encourages members to keep the commandments of God. Its mere existence stresses the seriousness and clarifies the meaning of the commandments of God. This is extremely important in an otherwise permissive society. The shepherd has a responsibility to protect the flock. That responsibility may require him to deny the sinner the fellowship of the saints, or even to sever his membership in the flock. As Jesus taught, If he repent not, he shall not be numbered among my people, that he may not destroy my people. For behold, I know my sheep, and they are numbered. So clearly there are times when people need to be separated from the flock, to protect the flock, people who are apostate, who are trying to work against the church. But for the most part, church discipline works to help people repent and return and make life changes that will bless them and generations far after them. So how do we as members of the church deal with those people who have left the church and have become apostate and are teaching against the church whose names have been blotted out just as it talks about in Alma? To them, President Faust says, To all such we reach out in love. We are anxious to forgive in the spirit of him who said, I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. We encourage church members to forgive those who may have wronged them. To those who have ceased activity and to those who have become critical, we say, Come back. Come back and feast at the table of the Lord and taste again the sweet and satisfying fruits of fellowship with the saints. We are confident that many have longed to return but have felt awkward about doing so. We assure you that you will find open arms to receive you and willing hands to assist you. I think that's the approach that we definitely need to take, that we need to be there ready to receive them and forgive them without any discussion, just to be ready to do it. It's not our job to judge. Let that Leave that up to the bishops, leave that up to the stake presidents and, and those who are higher up. And then we move on to chapter 27, 
And at the beginning of chapter 27, it talks about how all of the unbelievers began to persecute the members of the church. And there was a lot of contention and strife. And, and Mosiah sends out an edict saying, no, we're not going to have this. And he says, and there was a strict command. This is verse 3 of chapter 27. Throughout all the churches that there should be no persecutions among them, that there should be an equality among all men, that they should let no pride nor haughtiness disturb their peace, that every man should esteem his neighbor as himself, laboring with their own hands for their support. And because of this rule, they begin to prosper and they're doing very well. And then it starts to talk about how four of the sons of Mosiah and also Alma the younger were among the unbelievers and they were persecuting the church and they're trying to bring members of the church down. And it's at this point that an angel appears and he speaks with a voice of thunder and he causes the earth to shake and with their astonishment, they all fall to the earth and they don't really even understand him. So he says it again. He says, Alma, arise and stand forth. For why persecutest thou the church of God? For the Lord hath said, This is my church, and I will establish it, and nothing shall overthrow it, save it is the transgression of my people. Behold, the Lord hath heard the prayers of his people, and also the prayers of his servant Alma, who is thy father, for he has prayed with much faith concerning thee, that thou mightest be brought to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, for this purpose I have come to convince thee of the power and authority of God, that the prayers of his servants might be answered according to their faith. And now, behold, can ye dispute the power of God? For behold, doth not my voice shake the earth? And can ye not also behold me before you? And I am sent from God. Now I say unto thee, Go and remember the captivity of thy fathers in the land of Helam, and in the land of Nephi, and remember how great things he has done for them, that they were in bondage, and he has delivered them. And now I say unto thee, Alma, go thy way and seek to destroy the church no more, that their prayers may be answered, and this even if thou wilt of thyself be cast off. Powerful words from the angel calling him to repentance. Now, I know some of you out there probably listening to this and thinking, you know, that's pretty amazing uh, that Alma was given this opportunity. Here he was a vile sinner. He was trying to destroy the church and he got to see an angel. Why don't we get to see angels? What's the deal with that? How come we can't see the angel? How come we're not all converted like that? But I want to remind you that there were people who have seen angels at this point, right? Laman and Lemuel, for to speak of two of them, who saw angels and were never converted. In fact, President Woodruff talks about people who asked to see angels. And he says, no, angels only appear when the Lord really needs them to. And that's not what we need to do. We don't need to see an angel. In fact, in fact he says, now I have always said, and I want to say it to you, that the Holy Ghost is what every saint of God needs. It is far more important that a man should have that gift than he should have the ministration of an angel, unless it is necessary for an angel to teach him something that he has not been taught. So let's remember to keep focus on what is important. Having the Spirit is far more important than having an angel come. Nevertheless, the angel did appear unto the sons of Mosiah and unto Alma, called them to repentance, and we know, of course, that they do repent, that Alma lies in kind of a coma, comatose state anyway, for several days. And the Alma has the people fast and pray for, for his strength to return. And when he does come back, he talks about how he is, he's been redeemed. It says in verse 23 of chapter 27, And it came to pass, after they had fasted and prayed for the space of two days and two nights, the limbs of Alma received their strength, and he stood up and began to speak unto them, bidding them to be of good comfort. For said he, I have repented of my sins and have been redeemed of the Lord. Behold, I am born of the Spirit. 
And the Lord said unto me, Marvel not that all mankind, yea, men and women, all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people must be born again, yea, born of God, changed from their carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness, being redeemed of God, becoming as sons and daughters. And thus they have become new creatures, and unless they do this, they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Let's talk about born again for a second, because this is a concept that, of course, most of the Christian world uh, agrees with being born again, but it is not just a one-time event. He wasn't just born again right there. This is a process. Elder Christofferson says, being born again, unlike our physical birth, is more a process than an event, and engaging in that process is the central purpose of mortality. So Alma the Younger begins his process of being reborn, and he talks about the repentance process, and it's tough. He talks about, in verse 28, how he was wading through much tribulation, repenting nigh unto death, until uh, finally the mercy saved him out of his everlasting burning, and he was born of God. He talks about his soul, in verse 29, was redeemed from the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity. And that darkest abyss that his soul was racked with eternal torment. And he was snatched from pain and pain no more. How he had rejected his Redeemer and that's why it was happening. But then he talks in later chapters about how exquisite is his joy for repenting of his sins. And I want to read a quote by Elder Holland. He says, We learn that repentance is a very painful process. By his own admission, Alma said he wandered through much tribulation, repenting nigh unto death that he was consumed with an everlasting burning. I was in the darkest abyss, he said. My soul was racked with eternal torment. For three seemingly endless days and nights, he was torn with the pains of a damned soul, pain so real that he was physically incapacitated and spiritually terrorized by what appeared to be his ultimate fate. No one should think that this gift of forgiveness is fully realized without significant effort on the part of the forgiven. No one should be foolish enough to sin willingly or wantonly, thinking forgiveness is easily available. Repentance of necessity involves suffering and sorrow. Anyone who thinks otherwise has not read the life of the young Alma, nor tried personally to repent. In the process of repentance, we are granted just a taste of the suffering we would endure if we failed to turn away from evil. That pain, though only momentary for the repentant, is the most bitter of cups. No man or woman should be foolish enough to think it can be sipped, even briefly without consequences. We learn that when repentance is complete, we are born again and leave behind forever the self we once were. To me, none of the many approaches to teaching repentance falls more short than the well-intentioned suggestion that although a nail may be removed from a wooden post, there will be forever a hole in that post. We know that repentance, the removal of that nail, if you will, can be a very long and painful and difficult task. Unfortunately, some will never have the incentive to undertake it. We even know that there are a few sins for which no repentance is possible. But where repentance is possible and its requirements are faithfully pursued and completed, there is no hole left in the post for the bold reason that it is no longer the same post. It is a new post. We can start again, utterly clean, with a new will and a new way of life. And brothers and sisters, that is the miracle of repentance. It's not that our actions don't have consequences. It's that those consequences, though hard to overcome, can be completely overcome through the atonement of Jesus Christ. 
and that we can be made completely whole. We learn in chapter 28 how this conversion process, this deep conversion process by the sons of Mosiah, led them to desire salvation for all. It talks about in verse 3 of chapter 28, Now they were desirous that salvation should be declared to every creature, for they could not bear that any human soul should perish. Yea, even the very thought that any soul should endure endless torment did cause them to quake and tremble. And because of this deep conversion and their longing to save all, they decide that they're going to serve a mission among the Lamanites and help them to be redeemed. And of course, this is very tenuous. You have the people of King Limhi and Alma who have just been rescued from the clutches of of the Lamanites. And now the sons of Mosiah want to return back to that land and convert them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. President Hunter, in talking about this story, says, A great indicator of one's personal conversion is the desire to share the gospel with others. For this reason, the Lord gave an obligation to every member of the church to be missionaries. Brothers and sisters, I hope that we will take the time to be converted to the level that we feel the need to share our testimony with others, and not necessarily in words, but in our example, how we go about our lives. I'm so grateful for these scriptures and the opportunity to talk about them. I'm grateful for the conversion process that's been spoken of. I I love the quote by Elder Holland that talks about becoming a new post, becoming someone new, becoming a new creature. And I want to bear my testimony that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news And the good news is is that we are not stuck in a sinful state, but that we can repent and return to live with our Father in heaven on high through the atonement of his Son, Jesus Christ. I'm so grateful for that, and I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at drjaredthomas at gmail.com or text me at 916-412-2136. I also wanted to let you know that we are going to be doing this podcast every two weeks. So this is the last podcast for the month of May, and we'll pick back up in June. Thanks again, and have a blessed day.